0: my name is Kathy Supiano and I'm at the University of Utah. I'm a social worker by discipline, a palliative care social worker, and a geriatric social worker. And then I also have the great privilege of directing Caring Connections, a hope and comfort and grief program, which is the bereavement care program situated at the University of Utah. And I'm really delighted to be here and delighted to be part of the open to Hope uh, presentations that are going on today. So one thing to think about is that we as a society actually lack a language for grief. We don't have a normative, common way of expressing grief. we don't have a way of grieving collectively and and responding as as a community. So this idea of there being an absence of a common language is foundational to what is called the Compassionate Communities Movement. And this is a situation, uh, an effort that started in Canada Um, by Susan Cadell. And this is a work group that represents people from around the world. This is actually a call to have a shared language of grief in our very multicultural world. So grief literacy then is a movement. um, It's uh, that... encourages, this says requires, but it encourages our societies to move forward in ways that support bereaved people. It's a movement to expand grief care beyond its typical presentation, both in Canada and in the United States. So the goal of grief literacy efforts are to increase the grief knowledge that will enable public and professionals to readily not just identify grief, but respond more appropriately and be proactive in ways that would avoid complications that can come from uh, distressing prolonged grief, including depression. But we as um, grief advocates, I will call you, uh, must recognize that our societies are fragmented. Now, this is a good thing in that we now have many diverse ways that different people express grief and have different mourning practices and rituals. So that can be a good thing. But again, we're lacking this cohesive community sharing. This other um, aspect of grief literacy recognizes that grief is not something that's just within the griever. It's not just something that a person experiences in their own thoughts and feelings, but it affects the entirety of a person's life. Their physical, their emotional, their behavior, their s- social, financial, and their spiritual lives are all impacted by grief. We also know, and if you're working at home as I am, or you're socially distancing as I am, um, you know that loneliness is a huge part of what's happening in the united states now and social isolation is the fertile breeding ground for loneliness but we also know that loneliness is a very common outcome of loss particularly loss in death and of course the person is very very lonely for the person who died in most circumstances but every grieving person will tell someone who's helping them that after a while when the flowers die and the casseroles stop coming, one of the hardest parts of grief is that everyone else's life keeps going, and their life seems suspended in time with this yawning, yearning, that just fills their heart with sorrow. Again, a very normal part to loss. But what we're seeing now, and I'm part of this world, is that bereavement care is now located in clinical or institutional care. We are a grief-denying culture. We're also a death-denying culture, but let's think about us as a grief-denying culture for a moment. If you, like me, think you have great health insurance and a great benefit package at your workplace, When you look at the fine print in your benefit package, you'll find, like I found, that you have probably three bereavement days. For people who don't have health care or benefits, they have zero bereavement days. And most of us live in a world where a boss expects us to get back to work and be able to function just as we would before this person died. I myself have cared for many people who were under threat of being fired if they didn't um, perform well at work. I cared for one woman who was a receptionist in a large office building and came to work two days after her son died by suicide and was told by her boss, if I catch you crying in the lobby one more time, you're going to be fired. And so we live in a society that basically just wants us to get over our grief and is not particularly comforting. But even among people who want to comfort and want to help, we have these common socially awkward and maladaptive responses to grief that actually compound suffering. So when a person loses a parent who dies in a nursing home and a well-meaning person says, well, you must be so happy that your father is out of his misery, that can be very wounding. When someone says to a grieving parent, God needed that little angel more than you do, that can be extremely wounding, apart from the person's probably well-intended desire to bring comfort. So friends, colleagues, and health professionals also just kind of disappear. They lack compassion, they're often insensitive, And they offer these platitudes, not so much because they're unkind, but because we lack a language in how to comfort people and bring them comfort. So what is the current state of grief care in the United States and Canada and around the world? First, in palliative care and hospice care and bereavement care, usually that care is only offered to families that have been served by that agency. Uh, We know many wonderful hospices in rural communities that take in anyone who's grieving, but many times the family that feels, who might have lost someone in a car accident, doesn't feel like they fit in bereavement care settings where others have died of cancer or they were supported through hospice care. But to this day, almost all bereavement care is offered through structured, formalized institutions and it's provided typically only by mental health professionals. So access to grief care is limited outside of the healthcare system. Um, Our program is one of the few freestanding programs in the United States, though we are closely affiliated with our academic health system. We are able to care for anyone who needs our services. And the reality of bereavement care is that it usually doesn't start until the death. Um, Hospice is a bridge to this. Palliative care is a bridge to hospice, is a bridge to good bereavement care. But we don't have any way of preparing people for deaths that have a much more compressed trajectory than cancer death or dementia care death. And grief care is not provided in the United States for non-death losses, um, either divorce or family estrangement or infertility. So we just as a society are ill-equipped to provide that comprehensive wraparound care that many, many grieving people or people suffering a loss need to have in the short term, but then also in the longer term. So what's an alternative for us then? One alternative to think about, and this was cited in the grief literacy article, is the compassionate communities movement. What this is, is a challenge to the convention that um, the care and attention of those who have lost someone or those who are dying should only be within clinical and institutional contexts. Instead, this is an invitation that positions everyone having a shared responsibility to care for people who are suffering, to care for people who are grieving. And in doing so, this movement is working to shift the conversations about and the location of death into community spaces. I'll return you to this idea of at the turn of the 20th century, it was not uncommon for greeting people to wear, and we use this term a little bit even now, a, the widow's weeds, where a widow would wear black garments for the first year after um, losing a husband. And people took that as a signal to be kinder, to be more thoughtful, um, to be more patient with that person. Many people moving into the 20th century had a tradition of wearing a brooch that had a lock of the dead person's hair in it. Again, a symbol that you were grieving, that you needed more tenderness. And even in the Old Testament of the Bible, um, there, were, there was a, um, uh, laws that the army, when an army was called out to do battle, that those who had just been married, just had a child, or had just lost a family member, were not expected to serve in the Army. So that sort of community awareness of grief, as well as celebration, is something that we do not have in our society today. So what is a compassionate community? A compassionate community has the capacity to assess and process and and use knowledge regarding the experience of loss. So the first part of creating a compassionate community is much like we're doing in in this conversation in the Open to Hope gathering is to become more knowledgeable about the real reality of grief and loss. Then using that knowledge to facilitate understanding and reflection, skills to enable action and values to inspire compassion and care. And then finally, compassionate communities bring about support for the independence of individuals within socio-cultural contexts. This last comment is actually a challenge to at least our society now in the United States, where it seems that there's a considerable amount of tension between those who advocate for their individual rights and their own freedoms and those who say, but we must share in this suffering. We must be careful. We must practice these um, responsible public health practices to benefit our neighbor. And so there's this tension between what I need and what I want and what is better for the entire community. But a compassionate community would be a community that creates space for grievers and would acknowledge the new reality in their world and reach out with compassion and knowledgeable support. First, we'll get a little background on where this initiative came from, this call for the national strategy for grief, not just in the time of the pandemic, but going forward. This national strategy model first developed in Canada, so um, maybe mm, two months ahead of our efforts here in the United States, the Canadian Virtual Hospice Formed a collaborative partnership with other Canadian organizations to create the Canadian Grief Alliance. This is a group of organizations dedicated to creating a nationwide response to the grief and bereavement needs of Canadians in light of the thousands of deaths from COVID-19. This alliance came together and created this plan to address uh, the multitude of long-term needs that are considered most important as um, COVID developed and continues and how it impacts individuals, families, and whole communities. And let me give you just a little update on where um, this uh, stands at the moment. So initially, their first goal was to develop a consultation-driven national strategy over the next four months to identify gaps in practices and priorities. And this, in this period of time, the Virtual Hospice of Canada reached out to uh, an organization that I'm involved in, the Social Work Hospice and Palliative Network, and, and reached out to us to be a partner organization. Meanwhile, in Canada, they wanted to sustain and expand grief services by investing $100 million over three years to implement the, the National Grief Strategy of Canada. They then launched the National Public Awareness Campaign to increase Canadians' understanding of grief, to provide guidance and coping strategies, and to build the capacity of individuals and communities to support grieving individuals and families. And then over long term, to invest $10 million in grief research to help expand understanding and response to pandemic-related grief. Meanwhile, in the United States, um, the Social Work Hospice and Palliative Network launched our own uh, call for a national strategy for grief. So I think it's important that I frame this by recognizing that while it was the pandemic that drove this national call, much of what we've learned has been built on earlier crises, which we will talk about in a moment, But we are not just talking about people who uniquely die from the COVID virus itself, but we are talking about all the deaths that have happened during this time. And now this is happening on the backdrop of many of the violent deaths um, that we've seen that have resulted from systemic racism. So all of these things are coming together at a time of considerable national turmoil to allow us to do some individual and collective reflection and create a way to go forward. So um, in our organization, which is in partnership with the National Coalition, which includes the American Academy of Palliative and Hospice Physicians, the Hospice Palliative Nurse Association, and CAPSI, which is the Center to Advance Palliative Care, Um, are these partner organizations that have grown out of the hospice and palliative care movement. So our strategy is as follows. First, we want to create and develop a comprehensive national strategy to guide the expansion of grief services and to support Americans during this time. We're not creating organizations that don't exist, but we want to build on existing programs, identify priorities, and outline an implementation plan. Next, we want to invest in the expansion of services and resources to leverage technology and best practices to expand um, and address um, the increasing needs Um, of grieving Americans with recognition that the development of some services must take, um, must take into account and respect specific cultural, racial, gender, and community-based differences experienced by different groups of Americans. So the approach here is very organic. So we want to invest in individual communities, small communities that can be neighborhoods, Communities that could be larger, um, such as hotspot areas where we're seeing incredible consequences of the pandemic. And I would use, for example, Um, our own tribal communities here in Utah who who are themselves sovereign nations with their own cultures and their own religious practices and their own unique needs. So we want it to be organic and to come from the voice of grievers themselves. But we also want to bring the resources of existing structural organizations that are committed to advancing this. So we'll talk a little bit later about the many organizations that have already signed on to this national call the third pillar is to invest in the creation of services that support this retention of highly qualified health care and mental health care persons by proactively attending to work related grief and trauma and so you saw our our effort earlier to acknowledge the immediate um, but as well as the long-lasting impact that we are expecting to see first in our frontline healthcare workers who have responded in the hospital setting, the ICUs, the emergency departments, and the COVID isolating areas of hospices, now, our hospitals now. Our next wave is the trauma that we're seeing in our nursing home professional population, the nurses, the nurse aides, and then the direct care workers working in long-term care settings, including nursing homes, home health and assisted living settings. And then that, that third wave is going to be the mental health care professionals that are um, going to be addressing all this trauma while experiencing trauma themselves. Next is to promote awareness and education by accessing services, resources, promoting grief literacy, and efforts to build resilience going forward and then the fifth pillar is to rapidly scale up research capacity to better equip our providers families and communities to better respond to this evolving long-term grief and bereavement situation that has resulted from this pandemic so we want to attack this problem on all of these five fronts building clinical capacity and supporting the workforce of professionals, building communities to uniquely respond to this grief and trauma um, in ways that are culturally congruent for them, and then to develop this research capacity to gain understanding. Um, You know, if you're a grief uh, professional as I am, Um, or you're a palliative care professional as I am, it feels like you're always on the front line of bad news. And I do think we are on the front line of bad news. Um, Whether there's a vaccine or not, um, it is going to take a considerable amount of time and effort to scale availability of that vaccine up uh, in the United States and, and around the world. This is not a problem that's going to go away quickly, but the circumstances that have led to this pandemic, um, the environmental changes, some of the the jumping of virus from animal to human, and some of these situations that we're seeing now that are creating these novel viruses um, place us at risk for a different crisis and Um, Even as we're resolving this one, we want to take care to understand and scientifically examine what works and what didn't work as we go through this pandemic, because we want to be equipped for the next crisis that's happening. And so sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm trying to view this sort of like an insurance policy. Let's get ready now. And then uh, what a terrible situation here, pregnancy and stillbirth deaths impacted by COVID. So uh, we, we do not, in terms of pregnancy, we do not yet, and I'm, I'm a social worker, I'm not an epidemiologist, but we do not yet know the impact of the virus on pregnancy, though by all means, pregnant women should isolate probably as much as they possibly could because so much is unknown. And again, when it gets to vaccines and we think about rolling out vaccines, pregnant women would be among the last uh, to be evaluated for vaccine appropriateness. Um, But in the meantime, there are pregnancy losses and there are stillbirths. And so many of the stillbirths and the pregnancy losses that we saw in the early days when hospitals were shut down, when those were deaths that happened, when the mother lost the baby and even the father could not be in attendance. And you know that's changing now, thankfully. Fathers can be in attendance, but there was that window of time when even the father could not be present for the delivery of the baby. If that was a baby born as a stillborn, um, incredibly traumatic and isolating for these moms. We know that stillbirth and pregnancy deaths are already pretty much disenfranchised losses. Um, Again, we lack the language to talk about those. And then with social distancing, um, just the lack of uh, proximity of family can make these uh, these deaths uh, and the subsequent grief so, so much more fraught. So those those are are very good questions, and and I, I thank you for those. But as we go forward now with this call for a national grief strategy, um, we would be collectively foolish to not learn lessons from crises that we have faced before. I'm going to walk us through some comparisons between 9-11 and COVID-19 and the unique um, circumstances of these two um, national disasters. But before that, I would just like to talk about the reality of war. And so the United States has pretty much been at war since we were the United States. And many of the mass deaths that we've seen through the course of our shared history as a nation have been the war dead. And so if you remember the mass deaths of, of World War I and the disabled soldiers that came back. Many of those soldiers um, had incredible pulmonary disease because of exposure to mustard gas. The, the deaths after World War II um, where we saw so, so many families uh, and the majority of American families in World War II were touched by the loss of, um, of, of someone in, in the theaters of um, the Pacific and in Europe. So again, it was a, it was a broadly experienced um, social mourning uh, time as well as the trauma of soldiers that came back. But I think most of us would agree that World War II was the last war where those losses were publicly honored in the way uh, that we think of in Memorial Day and, um, and, and Veterans Day. Um, those were followed by Korea and Vietnam um, losses, uh, wars where those losses were not endorsed. Um, where our returning veterans were treated badly or ignored. And those who died in Korea, the Korean War, and in Vietnam, those deaths were not, offered, were not honored until very recently. And as people will talk about the, the Vietnam War Memorial, people describe that as the war memorial that the veterans had to build themselves. And I think there's a great deal of truth to that. It'll be interesting to see how Iraqi and afghani um, military losses are treated. I think we've we've recovered from much of what went wrong in carrying four families after Vietnam veterans died. But again, I think we've seen an enormous disruption and ambiguity about how those losses are endorsed. Um, in the long history of the Afghan-Iraqi wars, different presidents have responded differently to visual presentation of a fallen military person returning to the United States and would that be shown or not. In contrast to our neighbors in the north um, who honor every um, casualty with um, the the highway ceremony uh, that proceeds um, across eastern Canada to honor uh, a fallen military uh, person.